From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Depression is a serious mental health problem in the U.S., and recently, a major organization recommended that primary care doctors begin screening all of their patients for depression. You know, we found that referrals from the primary care practice across the street to outpatient psychiatry, sometimes greater than 50% of the referrals never made it to those appointments. So actually having those mm-hmm. mental health services physically co-located within a primary care clinic, I think is among the best practice that we can do. Also on the program, routine blood tests are part of most physical exams, but just what do they tell your doctor about your health? And can fidgeting help you maintain a healthy weight? A neat study found out. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, about 8 million adults in the U.S. are diagnosed with major depression every year. Now, that number may be just the tip of the iceberg, since a lot of people with depression go undiagnosed and untreated. Very unfortunately, yes. In an effort to extend treatment to more people suffering from depression, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, or USPSTF, recently issued new screening guidelines for depression. The USPSTF now recommends that all adults, including expectant mothers, be screened for depression by their primary care providers. The hope is that by routinely screening for depression, the incidence of other mental health problems, sometimes associated with depression, including postpartum depression, can be reduced. You know, you're getting pretty good at saying USPSTF. <laughs> Here to talk about these new guidelines and what's involved in screening for depression is Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sawchuk. Good to have you back. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, is that number right? Do you think that it's probably much more than the numbers that we're hearing? I think it could. It's getting more and more accurate as time goes along, but I still think it's an underestimate. We still have some cultural and even gender differences in terms of willingness to disclose um, distress that they're going through. But we are seeing every time that there's a new large-scale epidemiologic study uh, that's released, the incidence rates of depression keep increasing. Up to this point, isn't it true that most family physicians do kind of a screening test for depression when you go in for your your annual or your semi-annual physical exam. It seems like when, when I go, there's some questions that I have to answer before I see the doctor, and and some of them uh, are, are questions that I think are sy- symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. Well, typical psychology answer is uh, maybe or yes and no, because there's one issue, and this has been getting better over time, uh, the willingness for uh, primary care practices to actually assess for depression. And sometimes it's just a one-word question on a questionnaire. However, a response on a questionnaire is very different from the primary care provider actually following up on that information. So that's a, tr- that's a trick. And mm-hmm. we've definitely worked with uh, primary care and family medicine teams about, well, how do you actually ask uh, about depression? Some people admittedly are very phobic of opening up that can of worms and assessing symptoms of depression. Again, it's getting better as time goes along because there's for a very, very long period of time. And, and the U.S. task force you know, is highlighting this, that 
boy, what a great opportunity uh, of a place to actually screen for depression because people are much more likely to present with those symptoms in primary care and family medicine well before they would ever show up in a traditional mental health clinic. So the importance of doing that um, in primary care has been great, but it's taken a long time to culturally shape things to get to the point where we're actually screening for it and screening for it the right way. So how... Uh, how is the screening done? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think what we've learned uh, from uh, the research and uh, our public health interventions, um, one of the best ways to be able to screen for that is actually using the Patient Health Questionnaire 9. It's a great nine-item, simple measure of depression that's been well-validated in a variety of uh, primary care clinics. It's also been translated into multiple different languages, and it's very good in terms of the sensitivity and specificity of being able to to detect depression. And it also breaks it down in terms of level of severity depending upon your score on this questionnaire. So it only takes about a minute to two minutes maybe to administer only a few moments to be able to score it. And from there, that can lead to some recommendations and some further assessment. So tell us about those uh, questions and briefly uh, tell us one or two or three that, that would be a red flag for a primary care physician if the patient answered it in a certain way. All right. So we think about uh, depression. It creates a state of thinking, feeling, and behaving that's really designed to keep itself going. So we think of uh, the thinking side of things is where we can get a lot of ruminative thoughts, um, doubts, even suicidal ideation, worrying about uh, or thinking about uh, death and dying. Then there's the physical aspect where our energy is just zapped, uh, our sleep problems, um, even pain-related issues, and behaviorally, that kind of withdrawal and isolation. Now, the interesting thing about um, getting one of these, uh, giving the PHQ-9, is it assesses each of those domains. So sometimes you may see an elevation on that measure that really is about sleep disruption, energy problems, but all the other domains are scored very low. So it may not be depression going on. It may be capturing something different. Uh, but some of the more red flag-related things is the classic question, do you feel sad, down, depressed? That's a, a classic question. Have you lost interest in things you'd ordinarily enjoy doing? The more ruminative types of questions, you know, do you feel, um, uh, are you feeling hard on yourself, more ruminative about things? And certainly the suicide question, if, if you had thoughts about not wanting to live or to hurt yourself in any way, those would be more red flags that typically are more associated with true depression. So are you suggesting that or saying that every primary care physician ought to be giving their patients this this set of questions? From a public health perspective and a research perspective, without a doubt, without question. And I think that, again, the field is really, really advanced in terms of our sensitivity to be able to detect and screen depression and also set up treatments. Now, the tricky thing, and this is the change with the U.S. Uh, uh, recommendations, is beforehand they were cautious about screening for depression if you did not have treatment resources in place. Um, now they started to soften up on that a little bit more, but the emphasis now is on clinics to make sure that they develop those resources. So what if a person, a patient, goes in to see their primary care doctor and they answer some of those questions? The reason why they're there is because their heart is racing and or they have low energy levels. Mm -hmm. um, the, the primary care doctor 
discover, is this really nothing about your heart or about that? And it is something that has to do with depression or anxiety. What are How are primary care doctors handling these issues or these scenarios differently now than they did before? All right. So I think there's a few different ways of looking at this. I think that uh, some of the primary care and family medicine residency training programs have done a much better job over the years. So I think at the grassroots level, there's been uh, much more training in detecting uh, mental health conditions and doing evidence-based treatments uh, for them. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I, I work with uh, in Mayo and the Mayo Clinic Health System is developing what are called integrated behavioral health programs. And this is actually having mental health providers co-located, so physically present in that primary care space. Um, and that could be a variety of different people, like nurse care coordinators, psychiatrists, certified nurse specialists, social workers, or psychologists who are there and available to consult with their primary care teams right at the point of care. You know, we found, uh, even within our own data, that uh, referrals from the primary care practice across the street to outpatient psychiatry Sometimes, you know, as greater than 50% of the referrals never made it to those appointments for a variety of reasons. So actually having those mm -hmm. mental health services physically co-located within a primary care clinic, um, I think, is among the best practice that we can do. Would you say that, uh, in general, primary care physicians, it's fine for them to handle the treatment of most cases of depression, or should the majority of patients that they see be referred to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Yeah, actually, I really do feel that the majority of these cases can be managed in kind of that subclinical to mild and somewhere between the mild to moderate range. And there are some uh, scoring guidelines on the patient health questionnaire nine and some additional information that may be able to help that out. There are a lot of evidence-based treatment resources and guidelines that are available. The easiest thing from a primary care perspective are some medication management options, um, but developing some of those uh, programs uh, and services that are available in their local area, whether it be in the community uh, or with their uh, medical clinics, if they have an outpatient psychiatry department, what are the psychotherapy services that are available as well, too. But we've really seen um, improved sophistication of our primary care colleagues with being able to manage, um, you know, subclinical to mild to mild to moderate levels of depression. Once we see these more recurring depressive episodes, so this isn't the first or the second one, we're now in the third or the fourth round where they've struggled with um, being stabilized on different antidepressant regimens over time, maybe failed a course of therapy previously, um, more severe uh, functionally impairing depression, greater suicidality, those would usually be markers to bump it up to a higher higher level. All right, our guest is Dr. Craig Sawchuk, Mayo Clinic psychologist. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about treatment of depression with Dr. Sawchuk. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Craig Sawchuk. We've been talking about depression, a condition that affects, what do we say, 8 million adults that every sounds year. sounds about right. Sounds about right. Like I said, it may be an underestimate, but when we actually look over the course of a lifetime, about 17% of the U.S. population will suffer at least one major depressive episode in their lifetime. So those rates get very high. Before we talk about treatment, we do have some Periscope viewers who are watching us record this, and they have some questions. They want to know, is there a link between traumatic brain injury and depression? 
Yes, uh, there definitely is, and there's been actually quite a bit of research that's been done with that over the years. Very clear among uh, uh, folks without any prior mental health history or history of depression, suffer a traumatic brain injury, the risk definitely does increase. I think there's been increased sophistication as well, too, of understanding the role that other health conditions can play in the later onset of depression, cardiovascular disease, strokes, heart attacks. That can also lead to an increased risk in incidents of depression, which in turn can lead to poor outcomes in those conditions. Um, so we, we think from a traumatic brain injury, um, there's lots of uh, oftentimes physical and cognitive and social rehabilitation that comes along with that. So if the depression doesn't get screened and treated with that, it's going to make recovery uh, and uh, regaining function from traumatic brain injury much more difficult. Part of the, you know, the, the great example about traumatic brain injury and cardiovascular disease that the reason why we're really targeting, you know, these family medicine and primary care environments with these recommendations is that that depression and anxiety too are linked with these health risk behaviors, higher incidence of uh, physical inactivity, nicotine use, alcohol use, that all confer greater risk for chronic diseases and chronic disease management. So the importance of of having a, a language uh, in a non-judgmental, non-pejorative way has been a really, really important way that we've tried to. Another Periscope question. Somebody just said, what is the name of that? The PHQ-9? Is that what that is? Yes, the the short is PHQ-9, which stands for the Patient Health Questionnaire 9. If you do a Google search on it, you should be able to find it. That's great. So when you go in to see your primary care physician and they don't give you that, you say, hey, uh, give me that PHQ-9. Hey, I printed out the PHQ-9 for you. <laughs> Here you right. go. Here's you know, my uh, answer. Yeah, you know, really, in, in my, uh, I'm biased with this, but I, I really look at it like, boy, why don't you just assess it like you would blood pressure? It just make it part of the routine practice. Now, the screening guidelines, and this can vary in terms of implementation, um, but uh, a once-a-year visit, maybe twice per year doing that, um, that would be a great idea. To well, what about a self-assessment? I, I presume that you can find this questionnaire and you can Google the thing and answer the questions yourself, and, and will it tell you if you're depressed? Well, certainly. Does I mean, somebody have to interpret that test? No, that's that's the beauty of this particular test is you don't need a PhD level psychologist to interpret it for you. Actually, the scoring guidelines are very clear and very straightforward and readily available on on the internet. Um, there's always this fine balance between self assessment and and self awareness and, and your autonomy versus how do you interpret that and how's that linked to additional assessments and then getting you to that right step level of care that you need. Sure. A couple more Periscope questions for you. Is there a genetic link in depression? Have they got to the point of research to discover that or not? Uh, Yes, they have, and that research is going to continue to move forward. Um, It's a very general rule of thumb if somebody has um, uh, depression to the point where it really does start to interfere with their functioning, there's about a 30% chance there may be at least one other first-degree biological relative um, who's also uh, suffered a major depressive episode in their lifetime. Um, Now, we run into the same problems that not all families are really transparent uh, Mm -hmm. about uh, about their own history of mental health issues, and then genetics are a funny thing because you can have two totally kickback, relaxed, happy parents give birth to a fairly depressed kid. So it, it, it is genetics play a role. Um, certain conditions, it plays a much greater role, like bipolar disorder, for I example. I was going to mention that uh, somebody else wanted to know about children. How early does the screening for depression in a child, like a well-child visit? 
Yeah, and that's that's where the the task force also came out with some recommendations between ages twelve. I think the the lower order is twelve years old. Uh, and higher. And, and those recommendations look very similar to what we see with adults. Um, there is a child and adolescent version of the PHQ called the PHQ-A or the PHQ-M. So those are just, you know, well-validated, good psychometrically sound instruments for assessing and screening. In the younger kids, where, where you tend to run into it is um, sometimes it's hard with their language to be able to articulate a little bit more in terms of where they're coming from. So there's definitely screening uh, that's important to go on with that. You may see it more in terms of temper tantrums, somatic complaints as well, too. Bodily. Bodily, exactly. More of that kind of internalizing you know, reactions that there's a familial history, kind of pay attention to that. But you may have to uh, rely more on behavioral signs that you can pick off. But definitely some of those questions should be asked during those, you know, well-child visits. Um, but you know, it, it is one of those things that developmentally there's some different places to check that out. All right, we're getting short on time, but I want to ask you that the, the task force also talked about screening expectant mothers. Now, we all think that postpartum, we know about postpartum depression, but you need to screen these women before they have their baby? Yes. I mean, idealistically, if you have a baseline before they're pregnant as part of like a, a regular routine checkup, um, it intervals during their pregnancy, and that, that's what's great about well-coordinated um, maternal care is there's these routine checkup visits and repetitively assessing those things, that there's a nurse care coordinator or a member of the primary care team doing some phone check-ins, um, screening that way as well, too, and definitely in the postpartum period. We have less than a minute. So what about treatment? Um, if they are screened and they're discovered that they have some depression issues, then what happens next? Yeah, number one issue is safety. So if there's any suicidality, making sure that they're connected with resources um, that are, have that capacity to, to deal with that. Um, at the very least, uh, there is a National Suicide Prevention Hotline number that can be very, very useful. But you're really, your two treatments of choice are cognitive behavioral therapy, which involves a combination of learning how to challenge these negative ruminative styles of thinking and behavioral activation that can help people get reconnected with structure and positive reinforcers in their life. So cognitive behavioral therapy would be the more therapeutic way to go. And then medication management. Uh, there are some great um, medications that are available and out there. Again, family medicine, primary care doctors have gained a tremendous amount of comfort with being able to prescribe those medications and monitoring a person's progress, whether it be therapy alone, medication alone, or a combination, is very important over time to assess uh, compliance with treatment and, and how successful that treatment is. There you go. Treatment of depression in one minute. Dr. Craig Sawchuk, psychologist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being here. Great. Thank you for having me. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, your doctor can tell a lot about your health from a few blood tests. We'll have a guide to the most common blood tests and what they're used for. And can climbing the stairs, mowing the lawn, and even fidgeting help you manage your weight? The NEAT study found some interesting answers about routine physical activity and maintaining a healthy weight. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. 
That saying holds true for physical fitness and our bodies. Now there's evidence it may also be true for our minds. Keeping your mind active is really important throughout your lifetime. Mayo Clinic dementia researcher Dr. Prashanti Vermuri and colleagues published a study in the journal Neurology that shows keeping your mind active may help ward off symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. It may delay the onset of dementia by about three to eight years, which is a very long time. Dr. Vimuri and colleagues studied people who are highly educated and carriers of a gene linked to Alzheimer's called APOE4. The researchers found those who stayed mentally active in midlife had lower levels of amyloid deposits in their brains than those who didn't stay mentally active. Amyloid deposits are a hallmark sign of Alzheimer's. The researchers say staying mentally active doesn't stop the disease, but it may delay symptoms. Now, here are ways you can keep mentally active. Play brain games and puzzles, read books, do crafts, paint, or learn how to play an instrument. Any activity that stimulates the intellect may also help delay symptoms of Alzheimer's, at least for a while, adding more proof to that old saying, if you don't use it you'll lose it. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Your blood. Tracy, it is an open book into what's going on inside your body. It has or gives us clues about a multitude of things, from your cholesterol levels to how well your internal organs are functioning to how well you're getting rid of certain waste products. And checking your blood can usually tell whether or not you have an infection. So that's why whether you're having a routine physical or trying to sort out something more complicated, your doctor will likely order blood tests as part of your exam. And which tests will you have or should you have? And what can you tell from the results? Here to help us understand all of that is blood specialist, Dr. Raji Pruthi. Welcome to the program, Dr. Pruthi. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much. So screening blood tests, part of most routine physical examinations. Uh, what's involved? What, why are they taking the blood and what tests are they generally running? As you very accurately pointed out, uh, Tom, there are a variety of uh, tests that are ordered on a blood test. Um, so from the hematology standpoint, um, think of it this way. When a patient goes in for an annual physical or a periodic checkup, if they have symptoms, um, based on a history and physical exam, you can only get so much information. Uh, you can speculate that maybe a patient has an infection or it has, is anemic, if, depending on what symptoms they have. So when you order a blood test, for, in addition to all the tests of liver and kidney function, from the hematology standpoint, we measure uh, uh, different components, red cells, white cells, and platelets. We start with that. Now, that's a CBC, complete blood complete count? Complete blood count. That's what okay. it's called. So what, what's involved in that? What do you look at? So we look at the, the three different components, the, what the red cells look like. Now, that's the hemoglobin content of the red cells, the size of the red cells. Then we look at the white cells, whether they're increased or whether they're decreased. An increased white cell count may reflect an infection. And depending on the symptoms of the patient, you will need to treat that infection. If the platelets are low, now platelets are little particles that are important for blood clotting. They prevent bleeding. And if, for instance, if a patient goes in with bleeding symptoms, it would be very important to know what the platelet count is because they could be low. 
The reason you check the hemoglobin is because that's what carries the oxygen to the different parts of the body. So it's important to know if you have enough hemoglobin. Right. So that is the most – a CBC, first of all, is the most commonly ordered test. And, and anemia is very prevalent among the world population. So if a patient presents with very nonspecific symptoms like fatigue or tiredness or is losing blood, it's very important to know what the hemoglobin level is. When you measure the hemoglobin, it actually measures the hemoglobin content of the red cell, and because it's so important in carrying oxygen from the lungs to the rest of the body, if you don't have enough hemoglobin, you would be anemic and, and tired. Why is it so important that you have a fasting blood draw? Why can't I have my breakfast in the morning before that blood draw? So it depends on what's being tested. And a lot of our instrumentation nowadays rely on what they call um, photo-optical methods. In other words, they're passing light through the patient's serum or plasma. And if you have a fatty breakfast, there might be a lot of fat circulating that will prevent light from going through. And it you really might get, does show up in the blood. It does, mm-hmm. absolutely. All right, and obviously to do blood glucose, you need to be fasting. Why is that? So blood glucose is a reflection of um, how well your body is able to metabolize it, whether you're producing enough insulin. And if you you just consume a breakfast before you go for your blood test and your glucose is elevated, that might lead to an erroneous diagnosis of diabetes. So it's important to fast, especially for that test. Does it make a difference if you have a blood draw with the needle through your arm or just the prick on the finger? Why does that make a difference? So there are some tests you can do with just a prick on the finger, um, but but not all uh, instruments are, are validated to detect accurate levels compared to a, a needle stick. All right, so as part of the routine exam, you've told us that you get the hemoglobin to see whether or not someone is anemic. They've got enough uh, oxygen-carrying capacity in their blood. You talked about white cell count, which is a, a monitor for infection or might indicate an infection, platelets, which help in blood clotting. But also there's a chemistry panel. Isn't there a, a routine part of the exam? E- yes. So the chemistry panel you refer to um, tests your – these are what we call serum tests of your, whether your liver is functioning well or not. For that, we measure certain enzymes that are produced by the liver. And if you have uh, evidence of liver disease, your enzymes levels will be elevated. And then there's tests of kidney function. As you had stated uh, right in the beginning that uh, creatinine is one of those measures that um, tells you whether the kidney is functioning normally or not and able to excrete all the toxins that your body produces on a daily basis. So you can't necessarily tell by history of physical examination whether one of those organs might be diseased, but the blood test can tell you. Exactly. It, it supplements your history and physical exam. Now, having said that, sometimes patients don't have symptoms, but when you go for a blood test, you might detect some diseases, and that is early enough that the patient doesn't have symptoms yet. All right, some other tests I want to ask you about uh, that uh, your doctor may or may not order. Vitamin D. Is it important for, for uh, when you get your physical exam to get a vitamin D level? Uh, yes, I, th- I think uh, vitamin D deficiency is so common in the population, especially when you live in the northern hemispheres with lack of exposure to sunlight. So I think at least uh, an annual checkup for vitamin D is important. And if your levels are low, it's important to replace that to prevent uh, things like bone fractures. Well, just all these things from head to toe that uh, 
may not show up until you look at it in a blood test. Why wouldn't your doctor, if you go in and say, I'm not feeling quite right, just run the whole thing? That's not very cost-effective, Tracy. <laughs> okay. i got to tell you. You can tell I'm not working in that part of this, this business. <laughs> and I was exactly about to say that. It's easy to believe that if you go in and have a, a regular blood test every year, you'll be fine. But you're absolutely right. I don't think that's very cost-effective. I think for the most cost-effective approach to, to medicine, you really need to focus on the patient's signs and symptoms. And then if you look at a family history, for example, if you have a family history of premature coronary artery disease, you do want to check that cholesterol in that individual. All right. I want to ask you one more quick question. There is a company out there that I have heard about, and I think that you can even go to Walgreens and you can get for with just a few drops of blood. And supposedly they can do all these tests with just a few drops of blood. Some controversy. Is it true or no? It's very controversial. I think we need to we would need to look at the validation data, and I believe the FDA is asking the company for that validation data. There are, as I said, there are some blood tests that are validated and you can accurately measure, but not, but not many. Dr. Pruthi, blood specialist, hematologist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Great information. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, making NEAT-related activities a part of your daily routine may help you manage your weight as much as a workout program. We'll tell you what NEAT is and how it works. N-E-A-T. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Have you ever wondered, Tracy, why some people struggle to keep off excess weight despite following this rigorous everyday exercise program? And others, you know, they can maintain a healthy weight without following any exercise program at all. Well, there are several factors involved in how we gain, maintain, or lose weight, and regular physical activity plays a key role. And while jogging or aerobics might be perfect for some of us, it might be that routine daily activities like vacuuming, folding laundry, climbing the stairs, mowing the lawn, pacing while talking on the phone, and maybe even fidgeting are more important than once thought in helping keep our weight in check. Mayo Clinic scientists have been studying this aspect of weight management for some time in what's called the NEAT study. NEAT stands for Non-Exercise Activity Thermogenesis. Now, that's like an engineering word or something. Here to explain what NEAT is and how we can apply it to our daily lives is Nolan Peterson. Nolan is a wellness exercise specialist in the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Nolan. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Break it down for us. Yeah, especially the word thermogenesis. At the end. So Um, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, Mayo is all about the the acronyms, right? So you got to have another acronym in there. But... Um, essentially, you know, just as you mentioned earlier, if we think about exercise, like, you know, going for a run or working out at the gym, NEAT is essentially anything we're doing throughout the day outside of purposeful exercise. So thermogenesis, that's just kind of a fancy term for, you know, how your body is burning calories. And so we look at the beginning part of that acronym, the non-exercise. So again, everything outside of exercise. So it could be not necessarily just walking, but um, if you're cleaning out a, you know, a garage, organizing your closet, that's still getting you up and moving, and that's all a neat activity right there. Yeah, I think uh, last year sometime I heard something that just saddened me greatly that just said, if you spend you know an hour at the gym or you go for a 5K run and then you go and sit down at your desk for eight hours, you just completely negate <laughs> the exercise that you did. And boy, did that take the wind out of my sails. Yeah, I mean, um, and that that's kind of a... I don't want to say a misconception per se. Um, you know, I'm not going to let anyone off the hook for exercising. We okay, still good. we still want to exercise. Um, it, it's kind of looking more at we have to think about. I've heard a quote where 
maybe you're exercising for 30 minutes or so at the gym. Well, you still have the thing about the 23 and a half hours we have, you know, left in a day too, outside of sleeping because we, we need to sleep as well. <laughs> but um, exercise is still great for the body. By all means, keep doing it. But it's the whole concept of you can't reverse the amount of sitting that we're doing throughout the day. And really, nobody is unfortunately immune to too much sitting, even if you are an avid exerciser. So. Again, it's thinking about, you know, where are those opportunities to move throughout my whole day in addition to exercise? And so if you're just getting started and exercising seems a little intimidating, you know, where can I find a few minutes here and there throughout my day to, just to move more? So, Did you see, uh, did I see something that showed that sitting at a desk for eight hours a day was as bad as smoking a pack of cigarettes? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think I'd walk and smoke. <laughs> Give up the desk job. Why not? No. Um Again, it kind of comes back to our overall longevity on on this earth, and so looking at when it comes to you know is sitting going to hurt my lungs like smoking might, for example, mm -hmm. um, it's not quite the same thing there. Again, it's the overall years in our life, and there's been numerous studies showing that yeah, the more we sit you know day in and day out, it can cut back dramatically on how many you know years we might have. That's so. an overstatement, isn't it? That it's as bad as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, just like it's an overstatement that if you sit at a desk for eight hours a day, exercising for 30 minutes negates that. It doesn't negate that. Right. I think I'm hearing you right. So it's dramatic. <laughs> yeah. It's so dramatic. We're, we're getting intense right now. Yeah. Um, again, it goes back to as far as the you know sitting's the new smoking. It's it really kind of is painting that picture of you know there was a time where you know doctors were smoking in the physician's office and so. Boy, those and were the good old days. We're gonna start lighting up here in the office. No, no not um, around this equipment. You're not. Yeah. Um, and so it's the same thing with sitting. It's something that, you know, we don't see our chair sneaking up behind us with a, you know, going to hit us over the head with a club or anything like that. But it's the same kind of concept where, you know, we're finding out that too much of this is not such a good thing. You know, sitting used to be truly something to kick back and relax after a day's worth of movement. Well, now it's become essentially one of our main activities per se. So it's reversing that. How do we get back into sitting as, you know, truly sure. to relax, not just sitting all the time. I like that fidgeting is being studied. So let's talk exactly what is fidgeting. Is okay. it just moving your arms around or is it shifting your weight from side to side? What is fidgeting? Yeah, that, that's a great question, actually, because um, I was just reviewing some of the studies before, before coming on here today. And that's kind of the tricky part about it, where some studies, you know, they talk about fidgeting it can be just tapping your fingers on the desk to if you've got a restless leg, for example. And so a lot of times the media will take these and run with it, sure. saying, I'm going to burn, you know, thousands of calories just twiddling my thumbs. And unfortunately, that's not quite the case. Um, I always like to say that fidgeting is, um, you know, kind of your body's cue is, hey, let's get up and move for a little bit. So if you are feeling a little restless, use that as a, you know, a cue to get up and move around. Um, is, a, is a stand-up desk worth the money? <laughs> that depends. So... When it comes to a stand-up desk, I think um, there's still mixed reviews that are out there as far as how many calories it's going to burn. Some of the studies already have shown that, you know, when it comes to sitting to standing, you're going to bump up your calorie burn maybe by 0.7 more calories. So at the end of an hour, that could be anywhere from 20 to 30 calories more. So not going to be a huge weight loss there per se, but it kind of goes back to more the idea of breaking up that sitting time. And so if you're already working on a standing desk, you might already be prone to going over to talk to your colleague versus just sending off an email. And so again, it's really shape, you know, reshaping your environment to encourage you to move more versus, oh, first I got to get up out of my chair and then I got to move versus if you're already up on your feet, probably more likely to move around more too. So someone must have shown at some point, and I've never seen the study, that if sitting is so bad for you, over-the-road truck drivers must have a shortened <laughs> life expectancy. 
you know, I've gotten asked that question too. Um, I, I haven't seen anything yet, you know, looking at that type of population, but I have worked. Well, there with, has to be. I'm, I mean, I'm if sure what there. you're saying is true, there has to be that data out there. Yeah, I know. Um, I quote a lot of Dr. Levine. That's, you know, where a lot of the research, uh, yeah. you know, got me turned on to this idea of NEATS. And I know he's worked with, I believe, kind of that population before. And, um, you know, it, he talks about taking 10 minutes every hour if you can, um, you know, prescribing 10 minutes of movements for every hour of sitting. And so uh, for people that do have to travel a lot, whether it's on an airplane, whether you're driving a lot, whatever it might be, again, it goes back to that mindfulness piece of, you know, well, how long have I been sitting for? And if it's possible, get up and move. And if you can't quite, you know, can you be moving around a little bit, you know, shifting your, you know, moving your feet and, um, you know, even doing some exercises while you're on the go. So. And maybe it's all related to weight gain just from uh, from sitting. And I suspect that there, it seems if you stop at the – if you go to the truck stop, there's a fair amount of, of over-the-road truck drivers who are probably overweight. And how could they not be? I mean, you know, it, it's, sitting it's not Sitting is their a, job description. Exactly. It's not a job that burns a lot of calories. I think it's uh, probably not a coincidence that the importance of fidgeting and just non-exercise movement is coinciding perfectly – with Fitbits and Jawbones, and you're, you've got an Apple Watch there I that's do, telling. Yep. So, how important are those activity trackers? Yep, um, I would say you know they're, and I hope nobody, no, no companies come after me, please. You know, I love all the trackers <laughs> that are out there, but um, you know there isn't a perfect tracker just yet. I think until you know we get to the point where you have something embedded in us, which I'm not signing up for that anytime <laughs> soon. Um, you know, you're always going to have, you know, it's going to miss maybe some steps here and there, this or that, but. Whatever tractor that you choose to go with, I always look at what do you want to get from it? Are you looking for information about how you know long you're sitting for? A lot of the trackers will mind you to get up and move if you've been sitting for too long, which I think is one of the coolest things about yeah. it. Um, so, again, it's, it really goes back to that awareness piece right there. Um, and then you can kind of <laughs> – sky's the limit as far as the other um, bells and whistles you want it to do. Do you, you like one? that? No, I don't. Do you like that? Does it help you? <laughs> I do. Li- yeah, I personally like it. Um, I'm kind of an Apple fan here. And so, yeah, I've just um, got a little Fitbit that counts my steps, and I compete with myself. I know I've got some friends that compete with each other or their yeah. spouse, or what, spouse or whatever, and I just – I just like seeing if I can beat what I did the day before. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's something to be said about that, um, for lack of a better word, that accountability piece. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, when you have those colleagues and friends that you can kind of compete against, it's, it's you know, yeah, it's motivating to see what you're doing. And, um, again, you know, it, it goes back to that awareness piece. I can't stress that enough that um, if you're looking to track that and just kind of get an idea of how many steps you're getting in, that's a great way. Dueling with your Fitbit, whatever works. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. How can we get some more neat time into our day each sure. day? Um, well, some of my favorite ones, it just, it, it all starts with, uh, again, re, reshaping that environment to build those cues in. Um, so something as simple as anytime your phone goes off, whether it's a smartphone, a dumb phone, or, you know, an office <laughs> phone, um, just use that as an opportunity to get up and pace around. I've got horrible dance moves, um, and so I'm usually busting those out when someone's talking to me. They can't see it on their end, but I'm having a good time on my end. So that can be a, um, just a quick little fix right there. Um, something as little as, you know, staying hydrated with like a water bottle. The more hydrated you are, you're going to have to most likely go to the bathroom. Yeah. So that's an opportunity. Then take to, the long way to the office bathroom. Exactly. Yeah. I always say, you know, find a new bathroom that you haven't used before if you have a pretty big organization that you work for. Um, and then again, it can be a little things like if you use, um, like a stapler or, um, like a certain book that you use a lot throughout your day. 
position them so they're out of reach, so you actually have to get up and, and grab those. Um, and then there's even softwares, too, that will remind you, hey, you've been sitting for this long, and so your computer will freeze up literally um, until you actually break away for a few minutes to get some activity in. So it can be as extreme as you want it to be, but, again, it's just thinking about, you know, where are those opportunities to move more. Yours would tell you you've been operating too long, except for you have a standing <laughs> job, so you're okay on yours. Yeah, that's right. You need a treadmill in the <laughs> OR. There you oh, go. <laughs> Thanks, Nolan, for Thank explaining you. the neat approach to weight management. Nolan. Peterson is a wellness exercise specialist in the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic. Nolan, good to have you. Thank you very much. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Some of our guests are recorded during Periscope sessions. Get the Periscope app for iOS or Android. Follow Mayo Clinic and join us when we Periscope. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.